Our text before us is in John chapter 12 and verse 27, where Jesus is there in the final week of his life. And he's been teaching the disciples. And he's here with them now, and, and he says, he says in verse 27, Now, now my soul is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. And then a voice came from heaven saying, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. And therefore, the people who stood by and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. And Jesus answered and said, this voice did not come because of me, but for your sake. The text before us is one in, in which um, there, there, there is so much there just in those few verses. I want to begin in this time that we have to just think about what it means when he says, Father, glorify your name. What, what, is, what does it mean to... to Glorify the name of God or the glory of God. God showing us his glory. What, what, what is that talking about? What does that mean? You see, for, for us as is, is God's people, um, there's ways in which we can glorify him and there's ways in which we could not glorify him at all. You, you see it with God speaking to his people in Jeremiah 2. In verse 11, where he says, he says, has a nation changed its gods? Do you ever see that happen? Do you ever see God saying, do you ever see a nation change its gods? Which are not gods. Um, But my people, they've changed their glory. And he uses that word. They've changed their glory for what does not profit. They did a change. My people, their glory, the thing that they glory in, they changed it. They changed their glory for something that does not profit. And then God goes from there to to speak to his people, and and he says in relation to that, because we we might look at that and think, okay, well, here's God's people. They changed changed their glory. They're, they're They're not glorifying him in the same way. They're not thinking of him the same way, and we all have our ups and downs, and there's times in our lives where it, it may be just a sweet time of blessing, and you're just glorifying him. And there may be times where you, you sing a song like 10,000 Reasons for My Heart to Find, and you're thinking, mm, I'm struggling to find anything right now. And we, we may look at our lives and say, you know, there's been times where it's just that high point where I'm just, I'm glorifying him. I feel like I'm glorifying him with all that is within me. And then there's times in which there's just a state of lukewarmness where I'm not in the same place. And we might look at ourselves that way and just say, like, it's just a part of the Christian life. And, you know, like, there's times where it's up and there's times where it's down. And there's times where we're glorying in him and there's times where we're not. And we may look at it in, in such a way that we dismiss a lot of it and just think, do my best. And yet, in Jeremiah, God says in response to this, he says, be astonished, O heavens. 
be horribly afraid, be very desolate, be astonished that this whole thing of my people changing their their glory for what does not profit, this, this, this should be something that just shakes us to our bone. I mean, it, it, be astonished at this. Be horribly afraid if that's the case. Be very desolate, says the Lord, for my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters. And they've hewn themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. So I want to just begin our time as far as looking at what it is to glorify God, what it is as far as the glory of God, and begin by telling you what we're looking at this morning matters. That doesn't kind of matter. It matters. It matters to where if we're in a place where our thoughts of God are just small, we think about him very little, We pray to him in a way in which he does not, um, we don't address him as if he's the king of the universe that can do whatever he so wills to do. When when we worship him, if if our worship towards him in song or just in the way that we live is such that he's small to us. He's just, he's small. Um, If we think more about building up stuff, things, reputation, if our joy is, is, is sourced in relationships and sourced in whether things are going well in family or whether it's going well in business or it's going well in everything else, if this is where we are finding our joy and where our thoughts are going, God's saying all of it is directed in the wrong way. Be astonished. Be horribly afraid be very desolate because this matters my people they have these cisterns they they have these little pots and they're broken and they don't they don't hold water they keep pouring stuff into these things they keep pouring it into stuff or pouring it into reputation or pouring it into to relationships and pouring it into all of these things as far as the pride of life or comfort or whatever it is that they're trying to accomplish. And he's just saying it's, it's something to be horribly afraid of because they keep pouring it into these cisterns and it just all leaks out and there's this fountain of living waters that's there and, and they've, they've rejected it. They've rejected me and they keep going towards the stuff and it just keeps emptying out. And God's saying this, this is a huge problem for my people. This is something that it should make them greatly afraid. See, they've changed that which is most glorious. And they've brought him down to a place where he's just kind of, you know, he's there. The glory of God and the way that we glorify him matters. You find it again in the New Testament in Romans chapter 1 where God's talking about all people, and he just says that they, they knew God, all of them did. But they didn't glorify him as God. They knew him. They knew that God existed, but they didn't glorify him as God. Nor were they thankful. 
See, here's the, the, the fountain of living waters, the king of all that exists, the one who's created all things, the one in whom all glory and all honor belongs to. And, and God says, they, they knew me, but they didn't glorify me as God. And they weren't, they weren't thankful. Instead, they became futile in their thoughts and their foolish hearts were darkened and they professed to be wise, but they became fools. They changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. They took the one that, that, that is most glorious, the one who is totally perfect, the one who describes himself to us in the pages of Scripture as one in, in whom is all-powerful and perfectly righteous and perfectly holy and perfectly loving. And they've taken him and they've exchanged it and said, I want him to be like this. To me, my God is like this. And he's just like in nature. And my God is a God that, you know, like I, I, I kind of do what I want to do. And my church is the beach and this is my God. And it's just, I do it my way. And they don't think about him. They've exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God and they've made him just the way that they want to make him a corruptible being. And, and then it goes on from there to just God's judgment upon them and he gives them over to a debased mind to do things that are unfitting. Why? Because it matters. It matters the way that we think about God. Brothers and sisters, it matters how you think about him. When we talk about God and when we worship him and when we... Think about him. The way in which you think of him matters. Whether or not you see him as the fountain of living waters or whether you're in a place of, uh, he's just, I, I've made him in my image, kind of kept him in my compartment. I, this is my God. This is who he is. And God's saying, be horribly afraid if you're going in that direction because that's not who I am. We don't get to decide who God is. He decides who he is. And he tells us all about himself in the pages of Scripture. You, you, you see it in, in Exodus. You remember where Moses is there and he says to God, Show me your glory. Would you show me your glory? I want to, I hear you, but would you, would you just show me your glory? I want to see your glory. And God says, I'll make all my goodness pass before you, and I'll proclaim the name of the Lord before you. I'll be gracious to whom I'll be gracious, and I'll have compassion on whom I'll have compassion. But he said, you cannot see my face, for no man shall see me and live. You can't see my face. Because if you see my face, you're going to die right then. We, we, when you think about God, we, we need to filter it through things like this, where you hear people say things like, when I die, I'm the first time I'm going to go up him and be like, I got questions and I want answers. And I look at it like, no, you, you just die. Like, you, 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 you can't do that. You, you can't approach him like that. Your view of him is like the view of, of I've made him like this, and so I'm going to tell him what's up. But that's not the God of this universe. You don't go and talk to him like that. I mean, here's this guy, Moses, going, just show me your glory. And God's like, you look at me, you're going to die. You look, if, if, I, if I let you see my face, you, you're going to die. You'll just drop dead. 
can't do that. Nobody can do that. And so, the Lord says to him, here's a, a place by me. You shall stand in the rock. Go put your, put your face in this rock, in this little crack that's there. And it shall be that while my glory passes by, I'll put you in the cleft of the rock and I'll cover you with my hand while I pass by because that's the most gracious thing I can do for you. I'm going to put your face like in this little cleft of the rock and I'm going to cover you with my hand when I pass by. And then I'll take away my hand and you'll see my back, but my face you shall not see. Can't see it. And, and what's the result? Moses comes down and he's just glowing. Why? Because he just saw the back of God, as God passed by, having had his hand covering over him. We serve a God that is just radical, glorious. One in, in, in whom like I, I get fearful to just even preach a sermon like this because I know like I, I, could, I could pour my heart into this. I'm not going to scratch the surface as far as describing to you who God is. You, you'll get there, and you'll see him, and you'll behold him in his glory. And I, I, I'm certain that, that we'll be there just going, you, you made him look so small. And here I am trying to make him and just rightly represent him and, and show you how glorious he is. And I, I know in my mind that there's no words that can describe the glory of our God and adequately do it. You think of when you get to heaven and God just says things like, there's no need of a sun anymore. No need of the moon. No need of, we don't need sun anymore. Why? Because the glory of God's going to illuminate it. The lamb's going to be its light. There's not going to be a need of a sun. Because God's glory is just going to be such that it fills everything with light and there's no more darkness at all. So the glory of God all of his perfections, all of his righteousness, his otherness, his holiness, his brilliance, his perfect love, his sovereign power, his majesty, his... The fact that he never changes. Every perfect attribute of God, every aspect of his essence is displayed in his glory and If we see him, even just a glimpse of him, it ought, it ought to be breathtaking to us. It ought to be breathtaking. To see his glory would make us respond like the psalmist, saying things like in Psalm seventy three twenty five, where he says, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there's none upon the earth that I desire besides you. Like, who, who else is there besides you, God? I mean, when we're filling up these broken cisterns, if we get just a glimpse of who the creator of this universe is, our response is going to be, who have I in heaven but you? There's nothing. There's none upon the earth that I desire besides you. Broken cisterns, nothing. All the glory goes to you. You're the fountain of living waters. You're all my hope. You're all that, that I need. You're my portion 
forever. In Psalm 43, the psalmist says, Then I'll, I'll go out to the altar of God, to, to God my exceeding joy. And on the harp I'll praise you, O God, my God. I mean, you just hear him. You're, you're my exceeding joy. You're the source of it all. Psalm 42 says, As the deer pants for the water brooks, so pants my soul for you, O God. These are guys that get it. Picture that little deer just so thirsty going towards that water brook. And the, the psalmist says, that's, like, that's, that's, that's how I just want to be with you, God. That's how I want it to be. I want to I be like that deer. Just the only difference is I'm going towards you. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? I want to just be before him. The glory of God the source of everything in whom we look upon and we're satisfied and our breath is taken away just by our thoughts towards him. So here the Lord is speaking in John 12, 27. It says, now my soul is troubled and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I came to this hour. The time has come. The time of the crucifixion is at hand. And the soul of Christ is troubled. Think of the weight of what Jesus is saying here. He's about to go to the cross and he just says, okay, now my soul's troubled. Now now my soul's troubled. What do I say? Do I say, Father, save me from this hour? Christ is about to take the fullness of the wrath of Almighty God upon himself. Or we could say, based on Revelation 19.15, that Christ is about to take the fierceness of the wrath of Almighty God upon himself. He was about to become sin for us. The time was at hand for Christ to pay a ransom for our sin by shedding his precious blood upon the cross. And he knew exactly what was going to happen. I mean, you, you hear the words of Christ in John 12, 27, and then you go and you start looking through the Old Testament, and he knew exactly what was going to happen. We, we think of just one place in the Old Testament in Isaiah 53 where It's talking about the crucifixion and saying when we see him, there's going to be no beauty that we should desire him. He's going to be there and nobody is going to desire him. He's going to be despised and he's going to be rejected by men. He won't be esteemed. He's borne our griefs. He's carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken and smitten by God and afflicted. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. It's not hard. I I, I would venture to say most of you have have heard a sermon, if you've been around here for any amount of time, or if you've been in 
solid evangelical churches, you've heard a sermon about what took place at the crucifixion. You know what it was like, at least a, a bit of it. You know that, that he's betrayed. You know that all the disciples leave him. You know that Peter denies him three times. You, you know that the, 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 they're putting a bag over his face. And then they just start punching as hard as they can into his face, mocking him, prophesy. Where's this hit coming from? They hit him again. Where's that hit coming from? Prophesy. This is the one in whom has all glory and all honor who created all things. And he's just been tortured. Cat of nine tails there whipping him with rocks and pieces of metal and glass that's there within these cat of nine tails and they just they whip him 39 times with this coming around the front of him covering his back his flesh flesh would have just been hanging there they're plucking out his beard spitting in his face make him carry this cross through Jerusalem up to the mount called Calvary. They lay him down there and drive nails. They drive nails through his hands. Huge stake through his feet. Put a crown of thorns on his head. They mock him with a purple robe and then they pull it off after it's been there on his back and just tear it from him. He's thirsting and he just tells us that they all look at me and they stare at me. They're casting lots for his clothing and they're doing all these things. And we look and we just think, he's there saying, my soul's troubled and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this hour, for for this purpose, I came to this hour. This is the reason why I came. And we just described... So much of what was going to take place. My soul is troubled. What do I say? But with all that I described, I, 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 it, those things would be brutal in themselves, much less to take our sin upon himself. To take the fierceness of the wrath of Almighty God and to bear that for us. And to have the Father in whom he's for all eternity been with place all of his wrath upon the Son and to, and to place our eternity in hell upon himself, his Son so that you and I would never have to bear it. To pay the price in full, to pay the ransom that we can never pay. All of it is coming upon him to where. It's not just the torture that's bad. It's all of our sin and the wrath that we deserve coming upon him. And he's there saying, my soul's troubled and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I came to this hour. Isaiah 53 tells us, as we go on, all 
we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Our sin was laid on him, all of it. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. They made his grave with the wicked. And yet it says there in Isaiah 53, verse 10, after describing all that that Jesus is is knowing is going to happen to him, and his soul is troubled, and he's saying, do I say... Father, save me from this, this, this hour. Isaiah 53.10 says, yet, yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. And think, think about this. Like the Father saying, yet, yet it pleased me to bruise him. It, it pleased me to, to have him crucified, to have all of my people's sin placed upon him. It pleased me to bruise him and to put him to grief. Why? Why would God say something like that? It pleased me to do this to the Son. I mean, we read in other passages, there's no greater love than this, to lay down your life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him wouldn't perish but have everlasting life. We see the great love with which he loved us, that he gave us his Son. And yet there's this part where it says, yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. And you'll have people say that this is just like child abuse in the worst way. Why would God say something like this? And the reason is found there in the next verse where it says, as we're going through our text there in John 12, 27. The next verse says, Jesus says, For this purpose I came to this hour, Father Glorify your name. Radical. Father, glorify your name. I mean, Jesus is there. What do I say? Save me from this hour? And his response is, no, this is the reason why I came. Okay, so God, my Father, glorify your name now. Glorify it. Glorify your name. Make it so that they see your glory. Do it now. Glorify your name. And then this voice comes from heaven saying, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. I have glorified my name and I will do it again. I think of Moses being there up on the mount and seeing just a little bit of the glory of God and him glowing. I think of the disciples being there at the transfiguration and seeing a little bit of the glory of God. I think of the different pictures in scripture where you'll see God do things that are just glorious. Like 
like separating the Red Sea or, or stopping the Jordan or, or doing other miraculous things where he shuts the lion's mouths and he makes it so that people can be thrown into a hot furnace and they don't die and they're still there and he's with them. And he does things that are just absolutely glorious. He, he just speaks things into existence like the heavens and the earth. He speaks light into existence. He does things that are glorious. And we look and he says, he says the heavens, they display my, my glory. They, they display my glory. You look at the heavens, you see it all. It displays my glory. And yet, here in this passage, Jesus is about ready to go to the cross. And he says, Father, glorify your name. Make it so that your name is glorified. And I'll tell you, I, I think that if we look at all of history, see creation and see incredible miracles throughout the Old Testament. And you look and you see Jesus do incredible miracles as far as healing people and multiplying fish and loaves and walking on water and doing things that nobody else can do and, and, and seeing him shining brightly and, and appearing there like the sun and, and, and being there to where it's just glorious in, in his appearance. I don't know that we'll find a, a, a place that's more glorious than the cross as far as seeing his glory. If we, if we want to see his glory, you look to the cross. He's there and he's saying, Father, glorify your name. Father's saying, I have glorified it and I will do it again. The, only, the reason why it pleased the Father to bruise the Son is because he is about to display for us his glory in a way that, that he just finds great delight in it. He takes a people who were not his people. He takes a people who the inclination of their heart was only evil continually. He takes a people that wander. He takes a people that, that forsook the fountain of living waters and just made cisterns for themselves and broken cisterns that couldn't hold any water. He took a people that rejected him over and over and over again. He took a people who he says, they don't seek me. They will never seek me. They hate the light. They love darkness rather than the light. There's nothing that's good in them at all. And he takes those people and he makes for himself a people. And we sit here this morning, as well as all the saints that have gone before us and as well as all the other saints that covered this earth. And he has made for himself a people. He has displayed his glory in such a way that we see a God who does something that none of us deserve. He shows grace in which... It's unparalleled as far as anything in the history of this universe to see a God who loves the unlovely, to see a God who says, I'll give you my son. I'll find joy in bruising him because I'm going to make for myself a people. I'll find joy in bruising him because all of my wrath is going to come upon my son, my only son, whom I love, my only begotten son. I'm going to do this and he's going to die and he's going to take the ransom that you could have never paid upon himself, he who is the perfect lamb of God, who has fulfilled all righteousness, is going to be that sacrifice. I've had all of these other sacrifices in which I've never been satisfied with, but they were all pointing to my son who was to come, and I've been talking about him from the very beginning of creation, so that you would be able to see the God that I am, that I will redeem for myself a people, and I'll call them by my name, and I'll write their names upon me, and they will be with me forever, and I'll be their God, and they will be my people, and they will worship me, and they will glorify me, for they will see the God of this universe and who he is. All of them deserved hell, and yet I've redeemed for myself a people who will spend eternity in the joy of the Lord, not because of their own righteousness, but because of the very righteousness of my son. 
I'll do that. And we look and we see glory like, like you don't see any place else as far as the God in whom we serve. A God who became sin for us. A God who gives us all of his righteousness. Takes wrath that we deserved upon himself and makes it so that we become his people. If God took us, his people, and took our sin and just said, I'm just going to pass over it and Let's pretend like it never happened. We'll, we'll, we'll make it go away. We'll pretend like it never happened. And now you're, you're as white as snow. Um, his glory would be diminished. Because we serve a God who is holy. And a God who is righteous. And a God who says... Take off your shoes. You're on holy ground. A God who takes someone like Isaiah and he's there in his temple. The whole temple's filled with his robe and his glory. And, 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 and Isaiah's there, here am I sin. You know, I'm, I'm pure and I'm a man of unclean lips. I live amongst the people of unclean lips. And you see God taking, having an angel take a coal and go and put it on his lips. Because God can't be a part of sin he can't just brush it under the rug he can't just pretend like it didn't happen he's a holy god for him to do that would diminish his holiness and he doesn't do that but for him to give his son to be the sacrifice for our sins to pay the price fully completely When he said the wages of sin is death, he himself dies for us and rises again on the third day and says, whosoever believes in me will not perish but have everlasting life. Just like there was that serpent there in the wilderness and it was there put in the middle of the camp. So if you got bit, just look upon the serpent that's there in the middle of the wilderness. Likewise, he there became sin for us, hung on the cross and just says, Look upon me by faith, believe in me, and you will be healed. You will be cleansed. You will be washed of your sin forever. I'm the sacrifice. I paid the price. By faith in me, you could be forgiven. And is his glory diminished at all in the cross? Absolutely not. It's exalted. Look, and there was a payment that was made. When, when we in our culture today say things like, well, I don't know that all like whether Jesus is the only way and maybe there's other roads that lead to heaven. I mean, I can't imagine God sending people to hell just because they grew up in a different country where they didn't hear the gospel or I can't imagine God doing something like that and we start to to think that our level of righteousness and what we think should happen is better than what God thinks. We have just taken his glory of the one who always does things perfectly and we've brought it down to a place of like, 
maybe the cross wasn't totally necessary. Maybe there's other ways. I mean, if these guys do their best and everything else, you know, like maybe it's okay. Please don't do that. Look at who your God is. He says, no, I'll make it so my glory is not diminished. And I'll make it so there is only one name under heaven by which men can be saved. And it's the name of Christ because he died on the cross for our sins and they were washed away once for all. It was gone. And whosoever believes me will not perish but have everlasting life. But whosoever does not believe it's eternity in hell for them. It matters. We don't get to decide who God is. He does, and he has displayed himself for us to see a God who says, I will pay the entirety of the price for you. And by faith alone, and the work that I've accomplished for you, you will spend eternity in heaven. It's glorious. We see a God who becomes the least of all men and dies for us so that we get to spend eternity with him. And so he's there thinking about his death that's to come and saying my soul's troubled and what do I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I came to this hour. All of redemptive history has been coming to this particular point, And yet he knows that the sin of all the world is going to come upon himself. And then he just responds with, Father, glorify your name. The glory of the Father, the glory of his name, the glory of Christ, was that motivation in which he said, I'm going to the cross. So that the entire universe will know who it is that they serve. They'll see me. Perfect love. Unending grace. Taking the sin upon himself as that perfect substitute. Perfect humility. Laying down his life for his people. They'll see it all to where forever they'll praise him. Forever, they'll worship him. Forever, they'll say things like, all glory and all honor belong to you, belong to the lamb that was slain. Forever and ever and ever and ever, he has displayed his glory. And so when Jesus says, Father, glorify your name, the Father doesn't sit there and say like, maybe this was a bad idea. No, he responds in the affirmative, I have both glorified it, And I will glorify it again. I will do that. I have glorified my name and I will do it again. And when you're there on the cross, it will please me to bruise you because I am going to reveal my glory to the people so that they will have the most incredible joy for all eternity. The way in which he is glorified and we see it and the source of our joy go hand in hand. I mean, if... If we see the glory of God and we see a God who not only creates things and speaks things into existence and does incredible miracles, but a God who loves us the way that he has loved us and died on the cross for us in the way that he has died for us, and we see his glory as far as all of his perfections shining brightly as a light but also brightly as our Savior upon the cross, when we see his glory, our joy radically changes because our joy is found in just beholding him. 
He's made us to be his people so that we could see him and worship him with joy because of who he is and what he's done for us. This is incredible to think about. And just the, the, the heart of the Father, I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. And then Jesus goes from there to say to them, This voice did not come because of me, but for your sake. It wasn't because Jesus needed the Father to say, I have glorified it and will glorify it again. It came for us. It came for his people. It came so that we would be here on a Sunday morning like today and look and think, he has displayed himself to us through his son. So that my heart and my affections, all these things are going to be geared and pointed towards him for all eternity. Far be it for me that I just start messing with broken cisterns that could hold no water. I want to turn away from that. I want to to be fixated upon him. And when I'm consumed with self and when I'm consumed with circumstances and when I'm trying to find my joy in this stuff, may I look to the cross and see his glory displayed and just say like, let goods and kindred grow, and this mortal life also, the body they may kill. His truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever, and I'm fixated upon my Savior because he matters more than anything else. This life, it just, <laughs> it, it, it appears here for a little while like a little vapor, and then it vanishes away, and we will spend eternity with him basking in his glory. We use words like that, basking in his glory, Hopefully you get a little bit more of what that means. To be able to see him for who he is, your savior, your Lord, the one who called you, the one who gave you the Holy Spirit, the one who sealed you until the day of redemption. He began the good work in you and he'll be faithful to complete it and he's wiped away all of your sins and he's given you his righteousness and you'll spend eternity in the joy of the Lord. You will bask in that. A savior who is like that for all eternity. A savior who tells you that he rejoices over you with singing singing, a God who sings with joy over you. This is our God. So, on a morning like today, I encourage you, command of your soul, bless the Lord, O my soul. Worship his holy name. Sing like never before, O my soul. I'll worship your holy name. For you're rich in love and you're slow in anger. Your name is great and your heart is kind. For all your goodness, I'll keep on singing. 10,000 reasons for my heart to find. Let's pray together. Lord God, you have given us so many thousands and thousands and infinite reasons to praise you. With every pounding of those stakes into your hands, into your feet, With every time there was a cry that came from your voice, anguish on your face, the pounding of that um, the crown of thorns upon your head, the lashings that took place before that, all of those things just screamed out 
of the infinite worth of your glory. You wouldn't just let sin be gone. You paid the price yourself. And we just picture the sound of, of this hammer coming upon those nails and just thinking, your glory matters more than anything else to you. You showing us who you are, you displaying yourself to us, it matters more than anything to you. I'm so thankful that Christ, as he was there in that final week of his life, when his soul was troubled, he replied by saying, Father, glorify your name. And when you could have stopped everything, Father, I thank you that you did not. And you responded by saying, I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. We see a God who is just fixed on glorifying himself and showing us who he is so that we could praise you with all that is within us and sing songs like 10,000 reasons for my heart to find in it. And when we get to the end of the 10,000 reasons, we're just scratching the surface. I pray that you would use our time looking at this text to cause us to see your glory in such a way that we would never exchange it for anything that this world has to offer. May we repent after being astonished and greatly afraid and made very desolate, may we repent if we have been pouring stuff into broken cisterns. And may we just demand of our soul to praise you this morning and to glory in you. Please work that in the hearts of your people this morning, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.